Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we're continuing our five-part Environmental Law 101 podcast series by helping you hire an environmental consultant. My guest, the Dallas-based environmental lawyer, Jill Kodvis, will help you better understand the due diligence process, detail what criteria you should use in finding the right environmental consultant for your job, and how the work of an environmental consultant can both help or harm your deal. Jill has successfully resolved hundreds of environmental law matters in her career, including due diligence issues, risk minimization and liability transfer, vapor intrusion, and more. Her clients have included Aldi, Weitzman, Dart, Digital Realty Trust, Lone Star Investment Advisors, and many, many others. I'd like to note that this episode and the four others in this series are intended for educational use only and are in no way meant to represent legal advice from either Jill or the Real Estate Council, though we hope you find them insightful and entertaining. Remember to subscribe to TrekCast if you haven't already. We're on most, if not all, of the major podcasting platforms, including Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. You can also follow Trek on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on everything we're doing in DFW and beyond. Now, here's Jill Kodvis on maximizing your work with environmental consultants right here on TrekCast. Jill, in our previous episode, we talked about the need for property owners, tenants, and buyers to undergo environmental due diligence to protect themselves and their investments from the ramifications of state and federal liability laws. And they do that largely through the work of environmental consultants. Um, But just like doctors specialize in various practices of medicine and lawyers specialize in different areas of the law, as you know, Uh, Environmental consultants may also have different areas of expertise. When someone is looking to hire an environmental consultant to analyze a property, what qualities should they be looking for? Well, and and that is really a key question in your environmental due diligence because who you use as your environmental consultant, what their perspective is, um, what their business judgment is and their experience, and in particular their written work product, Um, can really make or break a transaction, uh, can cost you more in a development, and can extend a closure or cost a closure more with the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality or the EPA. Um, So due diligence in in selecting your consultant and in contracting with them and coordinating their work is, I would say, equally as important as the work they then do in determining the prior and current uses and operations and ownership of the property. Uh, So the criteria I look at uh, and that I recommend my clients look at when they bring me a new consultant I may not have worked with before is, uh, and not necessarily in order of of priority here, but but this may be number one priority. Uh, And that is the judgment of the consultant. And what I mean by that is, are they a black and white scientist that only is, it's the law ma'am, it's the regulation ma'am, uh, and it's gotta be this way? Or do they understand business judgment uh, and that environmental phase ones and environmental reviews are really more an art as much as they are a science? I think maybe more so an art. 
Um, so it's important that they understand the nuances and are willing to, to review nuances in the regulations and, uh, and in the requirements of the all appropriate inquiries, uh, environmental due diligence, and that they have worked with and have business judgment. Um, some of the more senior individuals in particular will, will be uh, those that have, uh, have that. Um, but in addition, uh, you want to find out if they have the expertise and the qualifications and the experience in two things. Uh, do they have that expertise and experience in the programs that you might end up having to enter if you find something on the property? So if it's a retail fuel facility, have they had experience in, uh, in investigating and closing petroleum storage tank matters or in changing out the tanks? Um, do they understand how that business works? Um, if it's a shopping center, uh, have they understood in the past the type of tenants that can be on there, the type of issues that might be identified? Or if it's an industrial facility, uh, you know, is it a type of industrial activity that they've worked with before? And then, of course, if you're going into oil and gas issues, whether refining or E&P, the exploration and production, you want to make sure that they've had that type of experience in the past. Um, their flexibility and their customer satisfaction uh, is important, and I think that goes along with my criteria that they place their the client's interest over the, con the consultant's interest. And what we've seen over the last five, eight, maybe 10 years is, is a, a progression uh, where the environmental consulting firms are becoming more and more interested in protecting uh, their liability and bottom line uh, and less uh, interested in performing a good work product or that would help the client uh, uh, limit their liability and, and their bottom line. So you have to make sure uh, when you're reviewing the contract terms and the reports uh, that in fact the conclusions and findings and uh, and the terms of those contracts are all vetted to to be more pro client pro customer than they are pro environmental consultant. Um, in in that regard, it's a real it's important to find out if they have a standard form contract, and if they do, if they're willing instead to sign your contract or if they're willing to negotiate the terms of their contract. And I've have come upon situations where uh, a consulting firm would not negotiate their contract terms and they were wholly one-sided and I recommended to the client that they not use that firm. Um, in many cases they will negotiate but when you have to do that it can add cost to a transaction because now the lawyer is having to get involved in modifying those contract terms and and negotiating those terms. Um, the quality of their reports and their ability and agreement to meet your requirements in the general report is important, particularly on the latter part. Um, almost all reports now follow various uh, uh, formats that meet the ASTM standard for uh, all appropriate inquiries, that ASTM 1527 standard. Um, but sometimes you come upon one that simply isn't, and it almost appears as if it's a report that's come out of the 90s. And I had that happen in a transaction recently uh, on a California property where the phase one that was presented to us by a borrower, in that case, a borrower developer, was wholly uh, non-compliant uh, with the uh, phase one standard. And in fact, it was very amateurish, uh, uh, very unprofessional. So we had to go back to the client and say, we think you need to get a new consultant and, uh, and redo this, uh, this phase one report. Um, uh, 
So that sort of leads into my next point, which is they need to be able to meet the due diligence standard and the scope of work that you need. Uh, if they're going to tell you, no, I insist on doing non-scope items or I insist on referencing in, the, my, in my report, even if you don't want me to do them, well, I would check them off the list and not ever use them. Um, maybe the second important point, though, criteria is how is their staffing? Do they have the staffing generally or right now for you on this project so that you can meet your timing needs? And it's really important to make that clear up front, especially if you have an involved environmental counsel. It's important to ask the questions of the consultant. Who are you going to put on this file? What's their level of experience? Um, uh, can they meet our needs and our standards within our time requirements? Um, the next uh, point I think may be, for me, at least the third one, and that is, have they worked with lawyers before? And, uh, and are they comfortable working with lawyers? Um, most environmental consultants have now worked with attorneys and feel comfortable with them, but some of them feel a bit threatened and are very uncomfortable with the situation and really push back on, uh, on our attempts to modify their contract or, their, or question their reports. Um, so that's an important question if you have a lawyer involved to, to find out uh, if, in fact, this consulting firm is comfortable with either being coordinated or engaged by the lawyer or working with a lawyer generally. Um, the financial strength of the company is important in one particular way. Yes, you want their bottom line to be good, but you're generally not going to ask for their financial statements. But you want to know what their insurance coverage is. What do they carry on all of their insurance coverage? They're going to be out on your or the seller or the landlord's property, um, poking holes perhaps eventually after the phase one or walking around or digging into things. So you want to make sure they have all the necessary insurance coverage. And in particular, you want uh, pollution liability coverage, E&O, or professional liability coverage as well. Uh, the general reputation of the firm for integrity and competence is important. Uh, but one of the um, points I raise with my clients is to make sure when you're talking with others in the real estate industry, your, your associates, your peers, if someone recommends a a consulting firm to you, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the right consultant for the project. They may have a good reputation with that friend or business associate. Uh, they may be entirely competent, but they may not be right for a particular project. Um, and I've, I've seen that recently where a number of large national firms are coming in more to work in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, and they have a totally different, extremely conservative perspective because they generally work with large portfolios of property and very large lending institutions or institutional uh, purchasers. So it's a bit of a different process for them and a very, very conservative uh, uh, review of environmental issues. And we'll, they'll tend to uh, indicate there are more recognized environmental conditions than there really may be. Um, References can be important in that regard, so as I said, they're not the most important. But I want to tell you what I think is the least important issue. Okay. That is the cost. And that is because if you're paying an environmental consultant too little money and it's not covering their actual out-of-pocket cost, then guess what? You're going to get less judgment. You're going to get less, uh, less of a quality of a report. Uh, you're going to get a company that doesn't want to have a lot of conversations about what they developed. Uh, may not be as flexible in 
in looking at whether or not their conclusion or finding was really correct. And more importantly, uh, they're more likely to either insist on recommendations or recommend in the report or a side letter uh, that you must take now uh, additional actions to determine if you have a soil issue, if you have a groundwater issue. Um, you know, do, is that black mold on your wall? Um, and so my recommendation to everyone is that you pay the consultants their value and their cost on these phase ones. Don't pay them $1,500. Their cost is minimally $2,500, and in most quake cases, a phase one will cost at least $3,500 actual out-of-pocket to the consultant. And it may cost more if you're having them do the lean and activity and use limitation uh, search or obtaining the records on that because that can be another $250 or $350 per property. Uh, and then they have an additional review of that data. In many respects, environmental consultants are investigators. And while their work is meant to assist in the projects being taken on by those who hire them, their resulting actions and reports could result in further, potentially unforeseen and obviously unintended liability issues. So how can people protect themselves? What are some of the contract parameters that should be incorporated into negotiations with environmental consultants and what should be avoided? So I'll, I'll highlight to you some of the most significant contract terms that I think uh, should be negotiated with environmental consultants uh, adamantly and uh, that, that uh, need to be reviewed carefully, especially when you're, you're receiving a standard form contract from a consultant. And, uh, and so they're skewing that contract toward their benefit. Um, I think the number one uh, term that I've seen so many people sign up to without realizing it is uh, a liability limitation uh, term of a contract. Um, that currently, consultants have moved more and more toward limiting their liability in contracts and Something you may see quite often is that our liability will be limited to the amount of our contract or $50,000, whichever is less, which means if you have to sue that consultant for failing to find something they should have or for any other uh, issue, then you're limited to your $3,500 phase one cost or perhaps $1,500 if you were really getting them for cheap. Uh, most consultants now, or Several have moved that to the $50,000 mark, and most consultants, when you address this with them, will bring that amount up to the amount of their E&O coverage, which should be a minimum of a million dollars, and on a, uh, a more detailed project, <clears throat> particularly a phase two project, or if in the rare case you're doing remediation, that should be brought up to two million or five million um, as a uh, uh, E&O professional liability type coverage. Uh, another term that uh, they've modified in the last five, six years is uh, they say that anything they generate or obtain or prepare uh, under the contract for the client belongs to them. Well, that's not appropriate no matter who the, the contractor is that you're engaging. Um, obviously, you're the party paying the bill as the client, and so whatever the, the consultant is doing, whether it's writing reports, obtaining documentation, generating information for you. Uh, all of that belongs to the client and needs to be turned over to the client either at the end of the contract or, uh, or when, when the client requests it earlier. 
Um, you can provide uh, language that allows that consultant to maintain a copy, uh, but you need to modify that language if they've said it, said it all belongs to them. Uh, there's generally a confidentiality and non-disclosure uh, term in these contracts. Um, they did not used to include that unless it was requested by the client, uh, but now what I'm seeing is they want to make that mutual. Uh, but again, uh, remember, you're the client engaging them for their services. So you are the one that has the right to ask them to maintain confidentiality and not disclose anything they've generated, obtained, prepared, drafted, et cetera. Um, and that's a change you'll want to uh, make and an issue you'll want to look out for. You'll also want to make sure separately or as a part of that non-disclosure section uh, that they agree that they will not report and have no obligation to report anything identified during your uh, environmental due diligence uh, or your phase two remediation, however that may apply, uh, to any government agency unless you specifically uh, permit them to or authorize them to. And there may be cases where you'll want them to make some anonymous or uh, or even not so anonymous inquiries to the state, even during a phase one environmental due diligence. Um, but this is important that you are the one that drives that and you are the sole party with authority as the client engaging them to be able to report to any governmental entity anything that's identified. Um, the contract should also provide two things about the report that are critical to limiting liability with the party that engages them. Um, one is you want the consultant to agree that they're going to provide all their written material no matter what it is, if it's extended detail email summaries or the phase one report or phase two report and draft first because you want to be able to review it, uh, talk with them about their findings and conclusions, remove uh, certain language that may not be appropriate that um, I'm happy to talk to if we have more time. And... Um, uh, and also to, um, to tell them that you don't want that report finalized until you ask for it. Many cases, a purchaser or a seller may not want the report finalized, or a party that owns the property and has someone uh, either perform a phase one or phase two data. For whatever their reason may be, they may not want a final report in their file. Uh, and for that reason, you don't want the consultant to finalize it until you request them to do so. So that's a term I modified to say that uh, you'll only provide it when we request it, when the client requests it. Uh, the report contents are something that we mentioned uh, briefly in our earlier conversation on, on this, which is the report content should be limited to findings and conclusions, and you'd want to specify that you do not want recommendations in the report if that's your position on a particular transaction or a particular project on which you're engaging the consultant. Um, Third-party reliance is important. If you're a prospective purchaser and this is being procured for you and the lender, then you want to make sure the reliance language in the report would include them, uh, and you want to make sure your reliance language in the contract will provide for that as well, and the language that you will want them to include in the report on reliance specifically. Uh, that would also apply if you were uh, engaging someone to do a report, but you don't yet know who the final purchasing entity will be. Um, this next point doesn't always come up, but if you have specific policies and procedures that apply to phase ones, for instance, then you would want to state in the contract that your policies and procedures will take precedence over any in internal policies and procedures of the consultant. Uh, and then lastly, 
on the point we made about uh, recommendations, uh, you would want to specifically state that the report would not contain recommendations and that if any are requested, they'll be provided verbally initially and only in writing and in only in a separate document uh, if requested by the client or to be included in the report only if requested by the client. So let's now talk about the actual work that environmental consultants do. How can their work be coordinated to, um, to minimize environmental risks and ultimately help you uh, in your transaction? Well, the, the number one thing is to be involved. Um, whether you engage an environmental consultant to be a, or attorney to be involved on your behalf, uh, or whether you're you're directly engaging the environmental consultant, you want to be involved not only with the detail of their contract, but you want to be involved in what the work is that they're doing for you. Have they complied with the ASTM standard and the documentation they've obtained? Um, and does the report content uh, provide a, a view of the property? in a way that is not appropriate or that could be modified to be a little less uh, uh, gratuitous, a little uh, less inflammatory, um, uh, which means you'd limit your liability in that regard too. So really the main, the coordination is important, engaging environmental legal counsel is important, but one of the main ways uh, at this level of, of the process is limit your liability through the language in the report and its content. Um, some of the points on this are similar to the ones we raised in how you'd want these things addressed in the contract, such as um, make sure there are no recommendations. And not just at the end in the recommendations section where it would usually come at the end of a report, but many times those recommendations will be slipped in throughout the report itself. Um, and you need to look at the whole report. Um, a lot of times, Folks in the real estate industry will look at the executive summary, check off the box, put it in the file. But when you get into the meat of the report, there are a lot of issues with the language that could come back to really haunt you in a subsequent transaction or with your lender if this report is being prepared to also submit to a, to a lender in your transaction, if you're the purchaser, um, and many, you know, many other similar relationships. So you want to review that report in draft. It's extremely important to get it in draft first and that it only be finalized upon your request. I have had consultants that wanted to close a file and just send us a final report, even though we asked them not to send one until it was requested if we wanted one at all. Um, you want the language to be plain vanilla. You don't want them to uh, have inflammatory, hyperbole language, and that is uh, a very constant issue you'll see in environmental consulting reports. Um, and it's, it's language they tend to have learned to use in the reports, and so they may continue to use it without malintent. Now, these folks are, you know, good folks in, in general and um, really want to do a good job for you. Um, but their language, again, can be the, the issue that comes back to bite you. So you want to remove any gratuitous uh, language or commentary or overstatement, uh, like hot spots is one I just uh, cross out immediately. Um, Another example in a phase one might be uh, of a gratuitous comment. We were not able to find any records that indicated a release from the dry cleaner. Uh, but that does not mean that a dry cleaner release has not occurred. Well, that doesn't provide us any information. Of course that doesn't mean it. But we don't need to be highlighting that. We just 
take that out. That's gratuitous commentary. If you're a purchaser and you're trying to get that sale price down, you might think, oh, I really like that language, but guess what? Once you buy the property, now that language is in your phase one report in your file. So it's really never a good idea to include those gratuitous uh, and, and overstatement uh, uh, terms. Um, no speculation, no, no unqualified conclusions. Those happen all the time as well, and those should be removed. Um, and, uh, and discuss only those scope of work items uh, that are authorized for the consultant. So recall going back uh, in our conversation that uh, we only want them to talk about the ASTM standard uh, issues. We don't want them to talk about did they observe that they, there may be asbestos containing building materials, that the age of the building might mean that there are or are not asbestos containing building materials, uh, that there's water intrusion or mold that could uh, become an issue, um, that the age of the building might mean there could be uh, lead-based paint or lead in the drinking water, and any other number of issues that they may bring up uh, attempting to assist you, but also possibly attempting to have you look at additional issues uh, so that they can get additional work uh, after the phase one. Um, it's important to make sure they have that entity name right. We discussed that in the contract terms, that the purchasing entity should be listed on the phase one cover and in the reliance paragraph. And if you don't have the purchasing entity name, then again, make sure you have reliance language in the report itself, which will be in the first several pages, uh, that allows any related affiliated entity of the party on the cover to rely on that report. Um, and then, uh, importantly, um, this is a broader concept that comes down to one issue that I'll address, but you've taken all this time to negotiate a contract with a consultant so that it, the report and their, their work product is going to be exactly what you need. Now you get this draft phase one report. You need to review it carefully to, for this issue. Have they slipped in new environmental terms that were not in your contract? especially in their disclaimer language in the page or two, that now they're becoming two and three pages of disclaimers. Um, yes, I will assure you they have. If that was not agreed to in your contract terms, then you need to remove that language on that basis. And one point in particular uh, I would recommend that you look for is uh, the consultants are now including in the reliance language that uh, no other third party can rely on the report and you, as the uh, person who engaged them, cannot distribute the report to any other third party. Well, I, I believe they're entitled to ask for non-reliance uh, by any other party that wasn't listed, uh, wasn't uh, able to rely based on the, the report uh, language. But they cannot ask you to not distribute the report. Once again, if you recall, you engage them for their expertise and you're paying them for their services. So that report belongs to you and you're entitled to distribute it to anyone you desire. And that should be uh, taken out. And I've actually not had any environmental consultant challenge me on that when I've asked them to remove it. That's it for us today. I'd like to thank Jill Codvis for helping us better understand the work of environmental consultants and how their reports can influence your real estate deal. Subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts so you can hear all the episodes in our Environmental Law 101 series and follow Trek on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.